All right. Welcome, everyone. Um, today is March 31st, 2021. I am Trey Dobson, Chief Medical Officer at Southwestern Vermont Medical Center and an emergency medicine physician with Dartmouth-Hitchcock Health. And this is Medical Matters Weekly, a show about the aspects of healthcare that matter to you most. You can submit your questions on Facebook Live, and we have a few questions that were sent ahead of time through email. Uh, my guest today, I'm very happy to have Dr. Stephen Leffler. He's the President and Chief Operating Officer at the University of Vermont Medical Center. Uh, just briefly about Steve, uh, he is an emergency medicine physician, which means he chose the right profession to go into. Uh, he's had over 25 years of experience. Uh, he has served as many things, the Chief Population Health and Quality Officer at the Medical Center for about six years. He's the former medical director of the emergency department, president of the medical staff, and it keeps going on and on, including the president of the Vermont Medical Society. Uh, he received his medical degree from UVM in our own state, and then he left and he went to New Mexico to get his residency training before he came back. And he also earned his master's in healthcare delivery science at Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth. So welcome, Steve. I'm so psyched you're here. Great to be here, Trey. Uh, where, where, where are you sitting right now? Are you in your office? I'm in my office in Burlington at the medical center. Okay, Super. All right, so we've read that you grew up in Vermont uh, and your parents owned a general store. So tell us a little bit about what that was like running around the uh, general store. You know, it was a great, uh, great place to grow up. My parents owned a general store just south of Middlebury, Vermont on Route 7. And I literally worked there from the time I could walk. And so um, it was a great way to um, get to know your community, a great way to learn how to work, um, to understand what it was like to work with the public. And I, I, I have two other brothers, so it was three boys in the family, and it was a family-run general store, just like you think about, you know, where we sold everything at the store, everything from gas to wood stoves. Right. That's excellent. And, you know, actually, I didn't ask you this, Steve, but I'll just throw it out there. I remember reading a New York Times article last year or two years ago about a general store uh, up in Rikert, I guess. Um, it's kind of similar to that store? Yeah, I mean, you know, when I was young, General stores in Vermont really were what how people bought their groceries, their gas. My, my parents sold clothing. We sold boots. Literally everything was sold there because it was, you know, there wasn't big stores. For us, the closest um, supermarket stuff was Brandon or Rutland, which was, you know, a 20-mile 20 20 drive. Right, right. So people pretty much got all the stuff they needed from the store, my parents' store. Well, fortunately, you know, a lot of the state is still like that. And even the places, uh, especially up around you, that have the box store areas still have also areas of general stores. And I, I tell you, I really like it. Um, it's, not just, it's not just nostalgia. It, it's actually a great way of life. So then you, you were running around a general store and somehow you became a doctor. So what happened there? Yeah. So, you know, what's interesting is I realized by the time I was graduating from high school that I already been working in a store a long time. And I'll tell you that my dad really wanted one of his three boys to step up and take over the store. But I realized um, that I'd already done it for a long time and wanted to do something else. The interesting thing is I started college to be a wildlife biologist. I, I love being out in the woods. I love um, wildlife. And so I, I went to UVM undergrad. And my first two years I spent, you know, outdoors studying wildlife biology. So it was an amazing time. Um, but I was the first in my family to go to college. And I went to a job fair in like 1980 and there were no jobs in wildlife, none. Uh -huh. Like the people that were getting out were all gonna go work in general stores or pump gas or build houses. Right. Right. And so I went home and I told my dad, who's a pretty practical guy. And he's like, well, what are you changing your major to? 
I mean, I was going to college to get, you know, an education to, to do a job. Right. And I, I was getting good grades. I liked the, the science and I had a great advisor. And so uh, I was able to shadow a primary care doc in Brandon, who was a little bit older than me. He was just back. And I, I fell in love with it. And the funny thing is, Trey, the second time I was with him, he took me to Porter Medical Center in Middlebury. He was doing a moonlighting shift in the ER. Uh-huh. And I loved it. The second, my second day ever hanging out with him, I thought, man, I could like, I'd like to do that. So what, what appeals to you? Um, actually, most emergency medicine physicians kind of answer this the same way. But what appeals to you about emergency medicine? I like seeing every kind of problem. Mm-hmm. I like seeing everything from your sore throat to somebody having a heart attack. Um, I've got to deliver a bunch of babies in my life. Um, I've seen people um, on happy days, on really tough situations. I like knowing a little bit about all kinds of medicine. I found out, you know, early on, I could think on my feet. I could problem solve in real time. And so uh, it's different every day. I also liked it because you go to work and every day you don't know what's going to come in. And, you know, in 25 plus years, I've taken care of a lot of my community. I've enjoyed that a lot. If I go to a party, someone's always showing me there's some cut I fixed on their head or (laughs) an arm that I said or something. So the, the clinical part of my career has been amazing. That's great. And then you went to New Mexico for residency. Um, And I think a lot of people in the community don't realize that um, we don't just kind of choose our residencies willy nilly. Um, And then there's actually this match process where you sort of go where you go. But just tell us a little bit about why you chose New Mexico and what your experience was there. So um, my wife of 32 years, um, I've known her since second grade. She's a Vermonter as well. And so we were getting done when I was getting done medical school. I was like, hey, this is our big chance to do something different. So we basically looked on the map and circled places that we thought would be really different than Vermont. And New Mexico was our, our number one choice, my number one choice for residency. It has a really good emergency medicine program. Mm-hmm. And that was really fantastic training. I saw a lot of stuff um, that you, you not as often see in Vermont. And I, we had an amazing three years there. It was a great training for three years. And then we made the decision to come back to Vermont and raise our family um, near both of our, our parents and brothers and sisters and stuff. So we came back to Vermont. We thought it might be maybe for a couple of years, but that was uh, 28 years ago. Right, right. That's great. Um, so for the audience here, uh, Dr. Leffler is, is actually quite a prolific uh, writer in, in the media. You can Google things he's written about. Um, one of the questions I was going to ask is, you know, you write about a lot of things. One of the things you write about are um, some of the cases you've experienced. You just mentioned when you go out to parties and, and other venues, you see people you treated. But can you tell us about, uh, you know, one of those or two that were the most uplifting and now in your 25 years of experience? Yeah. So um, one, you might be thinking about something I wrote. Um, I was relatively new in my career and uh, a young, um, a young child uh, was at a, uh, at home and he had swallowed a big uh, silver metal pinball from a pinball machine mm. gotten stuck in his airway. Wow. And he was, and the, the rescue squad was bringing him and they, and they, he was very sick. And you know, Trey, when the rescue squad calls, you can tell in their voice that they're really worried. Yes. And, and this kid was about uh, seven or eight years old. And, and they were very worried. They said, you know, he had a, a nearly completely obstructed airway and they're having a hard time maintaining his oxygen level. And um, they got him there and he looked very sick. Um, his skin was uh, really blue, about as blue as your coat. And uh, when the kid got there, I thought, man, if I can't take care of him pretty quick, you know, he's going to die. And so, uh, you know, we have some ways to look in people's airways and, and try and get stuff out. And I tried the first two that we always use. And it, the ball was so slippery and so heavy that it, I couldn't grab it. Mm. And uh, I don't actually know what made me think of this, but uh, I had one of my huge, big 
giant um, EMTs in the room with me. And this kid was not a very big kid. And I said, pick him up by his feet. And the EMT was a huge man, picked the kid up by his feet and he brought him up and his head was right in front of my head, but he was upside down now. And when I used the, the tool to intubate someone, I pulled his tongue forward and the ball fell out, rolled down the back of his palate, onto the bed, onto the floor. And he took a big, huge breath. And uh, he was very sick. He was in the ICU for a couple of days, but he had a full, complete recovery. Wow. You've never told me that story. Uh, I like hearing it right now live. That is, and boy, uh, for the audience, um, that is every emergency medicine, uh, you know, individual physician, when we go to bed and we wake up in the middle of the night, that's what we're worried about is the little kid with something uh, in their airway. And you experienced that early in your career. So we wrote it up. We, We couldn't find a case report where anyone had used that. And for that particular case, I'm certain it saved his life. Right. Uh, And maybe, and maybe the fact you wrote it up, it may have saved others' lives as well. Um, So, wow. Um, And, you know, and so that was early in your career. And, and what, what have you seen just out of curiosity for my own curiosity, but also the audience here, what changes have you seen, um, you know, particularly at at your own center in emergency medicine? And and this is a really wide open question. So you can kind of. A couple of huge things that I think are really different. So, when I was in Albuquerque, New Mexico, uh, this is, you know, in the early 90s, we saw heroin overdoses every single day. Mm. And I gave a lot of Narcan in my career, and I took care of a lot of people who were really sick. And I took care of heart valve infections and all the terrible, terrible sequelae of people who have uh, uh, narcotic addictions. And I naively thought when I was returning to Vermont in 1993 that I'd probably see my last one. But that was, <laughs> it really wasn't in Vermont. When, when I came back, we never saw them. It really wasn't here. And then, as you know really well, over the next, you know, 15 years or so, started as a trickle. We started seeing more and more until we got to the point where we're seeing somebody who overdosed or had a complication from, you know, narcotic abuse on every shift. So a major change. And we could spend the rest of the hour, two hours talking about how that happened and why. Mm-hmm. But we're, you know, tra- working hard now to get that back under control. That was one big change. The other really impressive change to me is early in my career, um, we always used to see terrible car accidents where people were really badly injured. You get four or five or six people who were terribly injured. Cars weren't that safe. People didn't really always wear their seatbelts. I think there was more drinking and driving. I think in general, mm-hmm. society's gotten much better about not doing that. And so it was, not, it was a very unusual Friday or Saturday night where you wouldn't have a big car wreck with, you know, six or eight victims. Yes. Cars are so much safer now. I think people are smarter about getting a designated driver or using Uber or something. I'm not saying we don't have bad car accidents now, but compared to early in my career, markedly less. Right, right. So what a great change, right? Because you used to see young people all in a car come in all terribly injured. Um, and it happens now, but much less frequently than, you know, early in my career. Yeah. And that is a very positive change. <clears throat> you know, most of the changes are quite positive. There's a, another one that's sort of in, in line there. But, you know, when you first started practice um, and, and same here, I'm a little bit uh, earlier in my career, but it was very much a um, one decision uh, person uh, situation in the emergency department. And and now that's not the case at all. It's very much a team approach. And, and I just think that the outcomes are more standardized. Uh, it's more relaxed and more friendly uh, in that involvement. I, I tell you, I welcome that change. I love the team-based care, basically in healthcare overall. Um, mm-hmm. I was a big sports guy all through high school. And so I really love it. And so, you know, I mean, you know that um, your nurses and support people and EMTs and MAs and everyone in the department with you 
all have a critical vital role to play. And absolutely. When somebody really sick comes in, I always think of it's almost like a NASCAR pit stop where everyone just goes in and starts doing their job. Um, it's pretty impressive uh, how that all works. Absolutely. That's been very welcome. So you have, uh, speaking of that, you, you know, then you've moved, you're, you do, still do clinical. Um, you're still a, a bedside emergency physician, but you also have quite a bit of leadership experience. And just tell us a little bit about how you fell into that or went for it or, or what happened. Yeah, it, it really wasn't totally planned out. I have to tell you that. People always say, well, how do you end up being the hospital president? I'm like, well, I know I'll tell you. Yeah. So um, 13 years into my career, and I was having a great clinical academic emergency medicine career. I was doing some writing. I was doing a lot of teaching, really enjoyed my practice a lot. The opportunity came to be the division leader for the emergency department at UVM Medical Center. Mm -hmm. And so I made the decision to uh, apply for it. I was lucky enough to get that job. I did that job for six years. It was a great job. I, I loved, and I know, Trey, you're, you're super familiar with this because we yeah. did some of this at the same time in our careers. Um, I loved that job. It was a good mix of administration, of clinical, of setting a course for a department. You work with all your friends, so meetings are pretty easy. Like everyone thinks alike. And I, I was really enjoying that and, and really was working hard to get us to be an academic department and get residents, which has happened now. I'm so proud that that right. has been finished through. They have residents. They're starting their, they're starting their third class, which is amazing. Really, mm -hmm. really impressive. Um, and while I was doing that, I became the, uh, I kind of took my turn being the med staff president of the medical center. Thought, you know, it looks like I'm going to end up spending my career here. I should, I should as a, a service, right. take my right. term and be the med staff president. And while I was doing that, I realized that I, I did like some of the, the other um, administrative roles in the hospital. And um, so uh, there was some leadership change in the hospital. And I, I made a tough decision, actually, for me to, to think. And I applied to be the chief medical officer of the academic medical center. Um, and I got that job. And that was a great job. And then from when I was doing that job, um, accountable care was starting up and ACOs and all that. And my, um, my boss, Dr. Brumstead, said, boy, we need someone to really have expertise in this. And so we really encouraged me to get a master's from Dartmouth in healthcare delivery science, which is a lot about value-based care, different payment models, how to be more efficient in, in healthcare. And so I was, I thought I was too busy to do it, but I did it. And it was amazing training. I, I learned a ton and really has shaped a lot of how I think about, you know, healthcare and administration and leadership. And I came back and after that training, I became the population health officer for the medical center through the whole network for um, two years. And I was doing, enjoying that job and really trying to figure out how to pivot Vermont to a new payment model and having the network really be part of that. And then um, there was a little bit of a, um, uh, a situation at the medical center where he asked me to step in and be interim president. And I'm a guy who says, yes, usually if someone asks me, they need help. You know, right. Yeah, doc, run in the room, right? And yeah, so right. I, um, I said, yes. And I have to tell you that after I said, yes, I laid awake like at night thinking, how am I ever going to do this? I'm, how will I ever manage this? But I found that I actually like it. I enjoyed doing it. And so uh, after being interim for a while, I made the decision to apply to be permanent. And so I've been uh, permanent for about 15 months now, president and chief operating officer of the medical center. It's a great job. Uh, it's super interesting. We've had a bunch of challenges over that time. It feels kind of like being an ER doc on a bigger scale. Right. But, um, I really enjoyed it. And I'm lucky we have amazing people here to work with. 
And then you, you've also have this interest in, in population health. So can you just tell the audience a little bit about what population health means? Of course, there are only about six or 800 definitions of population health. And in some of the experiences that uh, you've had, and by the way, I just have to tell you, I've always been impressed. Um, you are a true emergency medicine physician in that you can do so many things. And when you started getting into population health, uh, that was inspirational to me. So here's how I think about population health. Most of us, for all of our training trade, we think about how to keep the person in front of us well, how to take care of the one person we're taking care of. But you know, in your career in emergency medicine, that you see a lot of people who system things are happening outside of that one person make a big difference. And we already talked about it. See for cars, seat belts, how you eat, exercise, and so on. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I really started thinking about my career and what I wanted to do for you know some of the years further along, I thought, you know, I went to medical school to try and keep my community healthy and well. I really went to, to medical school. I wanted everyone to, you know, have the best life that they could. And being an ER doc is pretty reactive. You take care of people on their, you know, when something's happened to them. And we, yeah, we try and do some public service stuff and we try and help people be smart. But um, population health is really thinking about how can everyone in our community live the healthiest life they possibly can. And as you get more into population health, you realize that healthcare, like what you get in an emergency department or an operating room or even in the hospital, is a small part of your overall health and has a relatively small impact. When you're sick, it matters, but really much more of your, your health depends on where you live, what your job is, um, decisions you make every day in your life. Some are made for you. I, I want to be clear about that. You don't have control over all of them. And we could have healthier communities if we really thought about healthcare in a little different way. So that came, became really interesting and important to me. And it makes you think about how we get paid for healthcare because we get paid for healthcare mostly now. So somebody's laceration up, get paid for it. But what if we got paid to figure out how do people didn't get cuts on something, right? So population right. health is really a way to think about how to keep your community healthier, which I really like that concept and I've really enjoyed working on it. And, um, and I'm going to put you on the spot a little here with this one, but you've also gotten involved with um, some public speaking in, in areas of population health where it's sort of balanced uh, autonomy versus, uh, you know, society's the best interest of society. And of course, we're going through that right now with vaccination and COVID-19, but you had some experience with that. And um, is that tough? Is that tough dealing with, you know, individuals' uh, desires for their own, own rights is what they believe? Yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of this stuff, there's never the perfect answer. People have extremely strong opinions. Um, and so I think, but I do think that the discussion is valuable and important. And so right. I think if you can bring facts to the discussion, um, be as dispassionate as you can be, um, and present what you think is a reasonable way to think about it, but then also let other people present, present their views. And I think that there's room for um, conversation and discussion. And I think it actually enriches all of us when we do it um, in a respectful way. Right, and again, for the audience here who may not be familiar and want to do a little Googling of Dr. Leffler's work, um, what he does a great job is, is looking at the principle of the matter. In other words, what do we want to achieve? And then he recognizes there are going to be many other positions out there that individuals or groups might have. And, um, and those are really secondary. How do we come up with that principle that meets uh, what all of the groups, or at least most of them, are trying to achieve? And, and that is difficult. Uh, it's the mark of a great leader. And uh, some of the work you've done is, is remarkable in that way. And speaking of challenges, uh, unfortunately, our academic center in Vermont has, has had several challenges 
many of those shared by other health organizations, but some of them specific. And I don't want you to rehash um, you know, what's been going on, but can you just talk about how the university and the healthcare system itself is doing today after the cyber attack and dealing with COVID-19 and, and just feel free to elaborate on those. Yeah, so you know, um, as tough as, this, as COVID-19 has been, and as tough as the, you know, it's, it's hopefully our once in a career pandemic, right, Trey? Right. Um, uh, that's been really tough. Um, we were, we were, I don't want to say prepared, but that's what we do. We can figure those things out. Um, the cyber attack really um, disrupted everything that we do. It disrupted how we communicate with each other. It, it, it disrupted how we um, register our patients, how our phones worked, how we message people, how we schedule appointments. It disrupted everything. We literally went to a paper-based system for 28 days. Mm. Um, and I have to tell you that, you know, I, I can remember the day it was October 28th and I was sitting in my office and my email started getting a little funky. Like it wasn't working right. Thought, That's kind of weird. And then yeah. someone stuck their head in my office and said, oh, we're having a little problem with our IT systems. And you all know, that happens once in a while. Right. And I was thinking, right. oh, you know, the rest of the day is going to be a little frustrating and, and maybe I should go out and walk around and see how people are doing. And then, um, but I thought, you know, this is a one day thing. And then late that night, about nine o'clock, our IT team said, um, this is a big deal. And basically all the infrastructure that holds our systems together has been badly damaged. And thank God our systems were protected. No patient information got out. Epic, all the people's records, all our employee records were all safe and protected, but everything that connected them was destroyed. It was to be like if the road was blown up. Mm. And so they had to rebuild all those roads from scratch. And so we literally had 28 days here where we did, we had to reinvent the wheel. We had to go back to what it looked like in 1993. Like we actually had runners for the labs. Like we'd literally order labs and we'd run the labs to the lab station. Uh, our phones were even on the internet. And so some of our floors in that first day or two, we had to get them walkie talkies. Like we literally had to reinvent how we do healthcare. Um, but what I am really proud about is the staff here. Basically you said, you know, what's the guiding principle? We're gonna take good care of our patients. We're gonna keep them safe. And so we, we brought in a bunch of extra staff, throw more people at watching things and running and, and looking over each other. We went back to a lot of verbal type handoffs and stuff like we used to do in the older days. And um, we really didn't have any terrible outcomes of patients, which we were very worried about. We had to do manual reconciliation of the meds again. We had to make sure that all the doses were right. Like all the stuff that we used to do all the time in our career, which now the computer helps make it easier and safer. So I'm so happy the computers are back up. We're 98% recovered. All patient-facing stuff is completely recovered. Um, and we, we've added a lot of, you know, I will tell you that um, the way the attack happened, um, we were one of many hospitals in the country who, who had a problem at that time. Um, but we, we've added a lot of layers to make it harder. I can't say it'll never happen again because there are some bad people out there that are trying to do this. Um, but we've added a lot of protections to our system. We learned a lot from, from that event. Um, and I do hope that's the last time it ever happens in my lifetime. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yes. You know, I think that a lot of the public, um, unless they have uh, unless they were a patient at the time or um, have family or friends that are staff uh, you know, uh, up at the university, don't realize just what a really big deal this was. 
um, despite a lot of media attention. And, and I will say, um, certainly from what I've heard in my peripheral things, the staff were remarkable. Um, that's what we do in healthcare, but it's still, you know, it's easy to say, well, that's what we do, but it's, it, you still have to stick with it. And then also I will say that the leadership, not only your leadership, but your, your other uh, colleagues, that really makes a difference too, because um, it's pretty easy when your computers don't work to be just paralyzed with, anxiety and fear and you just can't figure out well what am I supposed to do but it sounds like everyone got together again under uh, good leadership and and good uh, mission driven idea of saying well let's just focus on what we're supposed to do and we'll figure out you know the, the path to that as we go along um, but I am glad you're out of it too my friend one of my favorite stories about the cyber attack is that night that first night October 28th about nine o'clock I realized this is a big deal we're not going to be back up in a day or two and the next morning, I got to the hospital real early to come in and start thinking about, you know, they, so, so I'm, I'm arriving and I park in the garage and I'm walking upstairs and, I, and I'm not, I was a little down. I was like, man, this is a big problem. And as, as all the night staff is coming out, coming down the hall, they're like, we got this Dr. Leffler. We're okay. We're going to be all right. No problem. And then I went through the ER and they were back on the old whiteboard with all the names up there in the circles and dots. And I walked around the hospital and they're like, hey, we can still take care of patients. We're still all right. And the staff was just incredible. It was hard. I mean, it was hard on all of them, but they were just so resilient and so tough. Mm. And um, so I'm so proud of them. That's Thank great. You. That is a great story. We're about out of time. And I did just want to ask one question about COVID-19, because I know a lot of the um, audience is interested in, in, in COVID-19. Let me just go to sort of a, an end question here. Um, not, not your crystal ball, but just kind of out into the summer and fall, what do you think our challenges will be maybe in healthcare or maybe just whatever you want to talk about in the community? Yeah. So let's be clear. We're in a race right now between getting people vaccinated as fast as we can and the variants and people's kind of frustration with the pandemic and wanting to get back to normal. Right. So the faster we can get people vaccinated, the, the more people will have protected. And here's what we know. If you look at the populations of Vermont that are vaccinated now, their risk of COVID is markedly lower. We were talking before we started, we vaccinated um, more than 6,600 of our employees. Of those 6,600, since we've only had six positive COVID cases of our vaccinated population, and they all had essentially no symptoms. They all right. were fine within 24 hours. And so we have to get as much of Vermont as is willing and able to get vaccinated as quickly as we can. And the better we do as a state, the more things will be available to us that we really want to do. I actually think there's a really good chance that um, sometime over the summer, it'll look post-pandemic normal, whatever that is, pretty close. We may still be masking for certain situations. We may still be doing some things like that, but pretty close to normal. I think the fall um, will gradually get back to what we all want and, and look forward to. That's great. And I will remind the audience too, um, you know, we, if you have questions, you send them in to me quite frequently or Dr. Marie George, our infectious disease doctor, you can now, uh, now that you know Dr. Leffler, you can send him the questions. He'd be happy to uh, answer those in regards to vaccine and, and this uh, state of emergency that we've been in. I'd also like to thank Mike Cutler from CAT TV, uh, Ray Smith from Southwestern Vermont Healthcare, and Ashley Jowett from Southwestern Vermont Healthcare for making this show possible. I'm Trey Dobson. Go out and find joy, even in the face of adversity, and I'll see you next week.